Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Are you nice and dry, or did you get caught up in that rain out there? Yeah, I know. Well, we're going to uh, start our new series this Sunday titled Surrender. Surrender. I know that's, the, that's our favorite word, right? I love to surrender. Hold on a second. As soon as I get my technology to cooperate here. But while, we're, while my uh, laptop is figuring out what it wants to do, we have someone who's come home to visit. They realized that they made a mistake by leaving Harlem. And so they came back to beg our forgiveness. They, uh, you know, I, I tried to warn them, I tried to tell them, but, you know, we had to surrender to the idea of letting them go. So they went all the way to Greensboro, North Carolina, decided to come back and repent. And so we have Hashim, where are you, and his lovely wife. We forgive you. We forgive you. You know, uh, <laughs> surrender. Surrender. Sometimes you have to say it a few times just to get used to it. But of all the disciplines, spiritual disciplines, I believe that surrender is what sustains the rest. Disciples of Jesus pray and fast because they surrender to the fact that we need God to lead us. Disciples obey the word because we're surrendered to its authority and instruction to protect and guide us. Disciples share the good news because we're surrendered to the mission left to us by Christ Jesus. And disciples confess and repent of sin because we're surrendered to a God who forgives and renews us. Let's go to God with the word of prayer. Our great and awesome God and Father, we, we come before you asking you to help us to continue to surrender our lives to you. Father, you set the ultimate example by coming to earth, surrendering your power and authority to come as a man to save us from ourselves. And you surrendered to death, yes, death on a cross on our behalf. And we pray that we can imitate your example by dying to ourselves each and every day. God, bless this time together. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the world teaches us the exact opposite of surrender, right? We have a never give up culture. We're taught to never surrender, never give in, never quit. You know, for any of us who played sports or was a part of any team, you know, your coaches, you can be down by 20 points and your coaches will tell you, don't give up, keep going. And you're like, are you looking at the same scoreboard I'm looking at? But they want you to give your best. They want you to give your all. So they say, don't give up. 
Don't quit. Don't surrender. Right? A boxer does not enter a match planning to surrender. No, they get beat into submission. So either they get knocked out or either someone on their corner throws in the towel. If they can make it and go to distance, they lose by points. But no one goes into a fight planning to surrender. They go in hoping to stick it out as long as they can. Today is Cinco de Mayo, an annual celebration to commemorate the Mexican Army's victory against the French Empire. It's called the Battle of Puebla in 1862. Now, it's celebrated here, but it's not, from what I understand, it's not celebrated in Mexico, but, you know, Americans like to party, so we look for any reason to party. But General, General Ignacio Zaragoza did not command his poorly equipped army of strong-willed Mexican fighters who were grossly outnumbered by the French, he did not command them to surrender. And because of their strong will, even though they were outnumbered, ill-prepared, they won the battle. They won the fight. And so you see, it's woven into our very culture and existence. Do not surrender. Never give up. And then along comes Jesus, who flips the whole thing on his head, which he often does, and tells us in order for us to get to heaven, in order for us to have a life to the full, we have to surrender. That goes against everything we're taught. That goes against everything our culture tells us. You know, I teach my kids. My, my son runs track, and he, you know, poor thing, he's doing, they got him doing the cross country, and he's running, and he's running. I'm just yelling, we're yelling, Noah, don't quit, keep going, keep going. You can see all these kids' face, they just want to stop. But the parents are yelling, don't quit, and you got some parents who are like, you better not stop. That's not us. You know, we're encouraging, keep going, keep going. Keep going. You get as close to the track as you possibly can because you want them to keep going. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, I want you to surrender to me so that I can make your life better. You know, the very definition of surrender is to cease the resistance to an enemy or opponent or submit to their authority, to give up a person, a right, or possession or compulsion, or demand. Now, the cool thing about Jesus is that Jesus uses a word very often to his followers. He says, if. If you want to follow me, then you must surrender. He gives us a choice. You see, when you're up against an opponent who's stronger than you, who's more talented, who's more experienced than you, they don't give you a choice. They're going to beat you into submission. That's what life does. Life beats us into submission. But Jesus gives us a choice. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, then you must surrender. See, in the Christian world, 
The main principle of surrender means dying to yourself, denying yourself under the authority of Jesus. I love this quote by our very own Dr. G. Steve Kennard. It says, but surrender isn't just about a one-time decision to make Jesus Lord. Surrender must happen every day of our lives as disciples of Jesus. If we want to grow spiritually, which I believe we all do, we must practice surrender as a spiritual discipline. For Christ to be formed in our lives, we have to learn the victory of surrender. See, the idea is to allow Christ to live through us and in us, unprohibited by self. Without our own personal wills getting into the way. So you have to really unlearn some things in order to learn how to surrender to Jesus. You know, when, we come, when it comes to our dreams, we're often, you know, listening to quotes and, and people who tell us, don't give up on your dreams. But Jesus says, I need you to surrender that so that I can modify those dreams. But unless you surrender those dreams to Jesus, they'll be your dreams, but they may not be what God has planned for your life. And so it's total surrender. It's denying yourself. It's dying to yourself that allows God to be formed in your life. Let's look at some very familiar passages that I often need to go back to. In Luke 9, verse 23, then he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You can't have Christianity without a cross. We all have a cross to bear, a cross to carry. And we must deny ourselves in order to take that cross up. How often? This is daily. Not when the sun is up and it's nice outside. It's easy to take up your cross then, right? Not when everything is going well in your marriage. No, we have to take up our cross daily. You know, I believe some of those things can improve if we pick our crosses back up. I think what often happens is we go through a challenge spiritually and we drop our crosses. And we go back to the life we had before we carried our cross and we think that that's actually going to make it easier. Jesus is like, no, that's what makes it more difficult. You need to pick that cross up and carry it and follow me. Luke 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to him, he said, if anyone, again, there's that word, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, yes, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus is prioritizing our relationship with him over all of our earthly relationships. So much so that it seems in comparison that we don't even love our spouse as much as we love Jesus. Imagine how awesome our marriages would be if we loved God with all our hearts. Because then that would pour over into the rest of our marriages. We're like, well, James, I love Jesus. I can tolerate Jesus, but I can't tolerate the nagging. That's all a matter of perspective. Because if you're not thinking the way Christ would think, then you can even look at his commands as nagging. 
I got to take my cross up daily? Come on. That sounds like my wife. It's because that's how you're looking at it. Parenting. Parents who love Jesus, who, who puts Jesus as priority over their kids, will, will prioritize that relationship. And your children will benefit from your relationship with God. I think a lot of us will probably have become disciples a lot sooner in our lives had our parents made Jesus Lord. Because then the atmosphere at home would have been better. The atmosphere at home would have been more conducive to spiritual learning. We would have had better examples. We would have been able to to confess when our parents hurt our feelings and, and they, in their humility, would show us what Jesus would do. And then we would grow up and we'd know what that would be like and we would be better parents to our own kids. So you see, being a parent who makes Jesus Lord blesses your family. Philippians 1 verse 21, from me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Colossians 3 verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, surrender shows up in other ways throughout scripture. You know, I know as a, as a young, young man in the faith, there were a lot of dreams that I was fighting to hold on to. Because you go through so much of your life trying to find your own identity. And then you, become, then you meet Jesus, and Jesus is saying, yeah, now I want to become your identity. And you're like, but Lord, did you know how hard it took me to, to develop this persona? Now you're asking me to give it up? Absolutely. Because the world doesn't need to see more James. The world needs to see more Jesus. And the only way the world can see more Jesus is you have to surrender your identity and take on my identity. That's how the love of Christ is spread throughout the world. But so much of our lives we're trying to cling on to and hold on to. And I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give that up. But will that make you more effective for Jesus? Because if it will make you more effective for Jesus, do you need to surrender that thing? You know, I remember coming into Harlem as a young minister, and I used to have my little, you know, my little diamond stud. And, and the brother at the time said, hey, you got to lose that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, why do I have to get rid of my, my, my earring? What is that, you know? He said, you're going to be meeting different people, old, you know, some older way, and it, and it could be a stumbling block to their faith. And I'm thinking, really? Like, people could, I thought, you know, God doesn't look at the outside. and God looks at the inside. So right here became a battle about my rights versus what's going to be more effective. And I'll never forget taking that diamond stud out and I'm like, there's $100 gone, you know, do it, you know. I was, I was a big blinger back in the days. And I'll never forget going to church and seeing one of our elders show up with, guess what? A diamond stud in his, 
When I went home, I went whoop, whoop. Because I'm like, hey, you going to tell him he can't wear one? So my pride, I'm wrestling with my pride here. I'm trying to hold on to a part of my persona. This is tug of war going on. This brother's already established himself. There's still over 500 people in Harlem at the time that I still need to win over as their minister. And unfortunately, you know, how you present yourself, people don't often see your heart right away. That takes time. You have to earn people's respect. So just because I had minister in front of my name didn't mean that I was automatically a minister. The very word means servant. You've got to serve some people to become their minister. The only way I, was, had to, only, I had to look at my life differently. Okay, if God asked, if Jesus asked me to do this, would I not do it? Am I more caught up in this, the fact that it's this brother telling me to do it? Or do I believe that this is Jesus helping me to be more effective for him? Sometimes we get so caught up in the messenger that we totally don't even hear the message. And that was my issue. My pride got in the way. And so surrender shows up in other ways throughout Scripture. Trust, submission, obedience, guidance, suffering, self-denial. All these things fall under surrender. Now, some of the opposite you'll see in the scriptures, defiance, rebellion, conflict. And we'll look at that in our next lesson. But Hebrews 5 is a scripture that should really help us with our decision on whether we should surrender or not. During the, time, the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus himself had to practice surrender. Jesus had to learn to surrender himself to God. He humbly and willingly surrendered his will to the Father. So he is our example. He is our model. Amen? So today, most people want discipleship, but they want it without a cost. They don't want to have to give up anything. They don't want to have to deny anything. They don't want to go through anything. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus. Wherever he may go, wherever he may lead. And trusting that he's going to walk with us every step of the way. That's what discipleship is. This is especially true in, most, in, a, in many evangelical churches around the, around the country. You know, people claim that they're disciples of Jesus. But the distinctive characteristics of discipleship is not evident in their lives. You know, I love this quote by A.W. Uh, a. Tozer. And he writes, a notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical churches, uh, Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have 
the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. In other words, people want a Savior, but not a Lord. They want to be saved. They want their debts paid. They, they want their, their health. They want, they, want, they want all that stuff. But they don't want someone lording over their life. They don't want a master. And that's not true Christianity. Jesus requires absolute and total surrender. That's why discipleship comes with the cross. So I have one simple point for us today. And then we're going to look at, uh, next week we'll look at another aspect of, of, of developing surrender in our lives. But if we want to develop this discipline in our lives, you know, I believe we have to start with how we think about surrender. And the Bible teaches that it's having in mind the things of God. Now, Jesus often points to little children as examples to follow. And when you think of a child, you know, most children are absolutely dependent on their parents. When we're infants, we depend on our parents to feed us, clothe us, bathe us, teach us, protect us. We, we depend on our parents for everything. And so as children of God, when does that stop? If we're children of God, then we are also protected, cleansed, guarded, taught, directed by God. We don't ever stop needing God in our lives. And so we have to keep these things in mind. We have to keep in mind that God is our ultimate authority in life. And if my life is in Christ, then that means that Jesus has to be Lord of everything. And you have to keep this in mind. So let's look at a couple of scriptures. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can share with the person next to you. Remember how we used to do that? Let's do that again. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 24. Have in mind the things of God. Now, this is shortly after Jesus and Peter and his disciples, uh, Jesus' disciples were together, and Jesus had just, Peter made this great confession about Jesus. He says, you are the son of the Most High God. He, he, he acknowledged who Jesus was, and Jesus said, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. I mean, he was waiting for them to get it. And Peter, being the outspoken one in the group, voiced that Jesus was Lord. He was the ultimate Savior. He was the Messiah. And so Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. Or eventually he would give him the keys to the kingdom once he had ascended to heaven. And so later on, you know, Jesus continues to teach his disciples. And here in verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now just imagine for a second, here you are, 12 of you, Jesus is leading you, and then Jesus just stops and just tells you, hey guys, look, we're going to Jerusalem, I have to suffer, I'm going to go through some hardship, I'm gonna, and eventually I'm going to be killed. 
So I just want you to prepare for that. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be watchful. I want you to be mindful. How would that make you feel? You just gave up your whole life, right? James and, and, and Peter, these guys gave up their business to follow Jesus. Peter had his whole family following Jesus. And then Jesus is telling them that I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Now, I'm thinking, man, you know, I wouldn't want to hear that either. And so Peter steps in and he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This should never happen to you. And I believe it came from, you know, a pretty sincere place. But then after I kept reading and I'm thinking, okay, well, Jesus wouldn't rebuke him if he felt like he was being sincere. So there had to be a way, a way Peter was thinking about this whole situation to make Jesus rebuke him. Because you don't often see where Jesus rebuked the disciples, especially when they were on the road arguing about who was the greatest. He didn't rebuke them about that. He often rebuked them about their lack of faith or their slowness in getting what he's trying to teach them. And so here, Peter pulls Jesus aside, which... I thought it was the boldest thing. And then Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I'm thinking Jesus' answer when he turned to the disciples he said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow. So there had to be something about Peter's rebuke that was self-centered. I think when Peter heard Jesus saying suffering, he thought, whoa, 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 hold up. I didn't sign up to suffer. You're talking about all this suffering thing. I got my wife. I got my family. I left everything. I didn't leave. I thought we were establishing a kingdom here. What, what is all this suffering in, 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 in hands of the elders and, and dying and all? Where is all this coming from? And so I'm thinking Peter was probably feeling a little duped here like, wait a second. No, 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 never, Lord. This ain't going to happen because I'm not going to go through that. And we see later on, what did Peter do? He followed Jesus at a distance and denied him three times. So Peter didn't sign up for suffering. Now let's put ourselves in his place for a second. When you were studying in the Bible, and I'm pretty sure we all went through the same scriptures, what did you think when they mentioned and persecution? We probably, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just going to get baptized. My good confession. Don't y'all remember that? Because that's in those, that's in that's in the studies that we do. We talked about, yeah, you know, you're gonna have to give up things in your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Your family may turn against you. Yeah, I don't like them anyway. So yeah. come on. Well, maybe my aunt. She's my favorite aunt. I like her. I think, like Peter, like Jesus, this isn't the first time Jesus told them 
what was going to happen. I think they heard him, went in one ear, out the other, and all Peter heard was suffering. And you know, Jesus doesn't hold back. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He tells us exactly what we need to expect. He tells us when we're gonna, he's going to bless us and how. And then he tells us what to expect in regards to following. He said, in fact, anyone who chooses to live a righteous life will be persecuted and will have to suffer many things. And so now let's go back. Let's take a step back here about suffering. Because I think the way we see suffering colors the way we see following Jesus. Jesus didn't see suffering as a bad thing when it comes to following him. Now, there is a suffering that you can go through when it's a consequence of your sin. But when you're suffering to follow Jesus, it's for a reason. God does not waste suffering. Matter of fact, God often uses suffering to shape and mold us, to chip away all the edges that's, that's rough, that's not like Jesus. He uses it as a tool to help us become more fruitful for him, more faithful, and more loving. Think about how compassionate you would be if you never went through anything. If your life was rosy, who would you be able to relate to? People wouldn't even come to you because, oh, he wouldn't understand. Oh, she wouldn't understand. She never went through anything. She's always smiling. Her life is happy. Her marriage is perfect. Kids do. Look, look at the kids, the teeth all white and straight. And I can't go to them. We go to the people who have struggled or are currently struggling because we know they understand. We avoid people who seem like they're super spiritual because they, you know, now challenge, I mean, everybody goes through something, so if they appear to be super spiritual, they're probably not being honest. But we go to the people who are vulnerable, who have suffered, who have gone through things, because we know they can relate, they understand, and that is why Jesus suffered. So that he could understand when you go to him in prayer. So that he can relate to you when you confess and you're struggling with the sin and you can't get rid of it. And you're like, God, it is weighing on me. Jesus understands because he too wore the flesh. He too stood in the face of temptation and said no. He too conquered Satan and said, you can do it because I did. So you see, the way we see suffering will either help us surrender or keep us away from surrender. having in mind the things of God. When you understand what suffering is really about, you see things the way God sees. You see suffering the way God sees. You know, it's no, it's no, no uh, secret that I battle depression often on, and I have my bouts, and I have my good days, I have my bad days, and I've often gone to God and say, why? You know, why are you allowing me to go through this? Why can't... You know, sometimes you have a struggle, and you kind of, you try to bargain with God. Like, why couldn't I struggle with that? Like, why this? And then you realize how many people you're able to help because of what you go through. 
And then you're like, amen. Amen. I can't tell you how many people God has used me to help because of what I've gone through and what I currently battle. I think it's helpful for us to see our leaders struggling, still going through, fighting, fighting the good fight. I mean, those are the type of leaders I want to follow. I want to know that you're going through something and that you're actually, you know, you're, you help me out. But if you're perfect and there's no flaw and you're not struggling with anything, then goodness gracious, Jesus came back and I didn't even realize it. And I'm not saying that we need to be happy that people are struggling and going through things. But what I'm saying is that it's important for the world to see that true Christianity doesn't mean that your life is free from suffering. But what it is is that you show them what a surrendered life in Christ looks like in the midst of suffering. You deal with it differently. You see it differently. You can look at it with joy because you know it's not going to be forever. When you're stuck in traffic, the thing that gets me through is I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get home at some point today. And that's the joy I take away from it. I don't like what I'm in right now, but I'm not going to stay in traffic forever. You get what I'm saying? The only forever there is is hell and heaven. So whatever suffering you're going through right now is not forever. Peter had a worldly perspective on things. Jesus was doing, what Jesus was doing, Peter just didn't grasp right away. And you know, sometimes it takes us walking with Jesus for a while to really get it. We don't often get it right away. But the closer you walk with God, the more you trust him, then you eventually you're like, amen. Now I see what you were doing. Now I get what he was talking about. You know, our minds can prevent us from understanding the things of God and being submissive to him. Let's look at another parable. Over here in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, and we're going to read from verse 1 through 16. This is a passage, this is a parable I've read many times and never really, you know, stopped to study it through until recently. And there's really some great, some great stuff here. In verse 1 it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and, see, and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went, he went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why, are you, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and received, each received a denarius. So when those who came... 
Those who came were hired first. They expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have, been born, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Let me take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Wow, right? Now, as I was, re- as I was reading this, I was like, yeah, like, why did he give the guys hired last? That didn't seem right. That didn't seem fair at all. But, you know, Jesus always has a point to his, his stories, right? This parable is about God's grace and God's generosity. And Jesus' audience at the time were the Jews, and he was actually talking about, you know, other times when you see Jesus talk about the last and the first, sometimes he's referring to the Jews and the Gentiles. Because the Jews received the gospel first, and the Gentiles received it last. And Jesus flipped it and said, now the Gentiles will receive, will be first, and the Jews will be last, meaning that they will receive just as much promise as you receive, those who will call first, so that there's no inequality in God's kingdom. So in a society where there's no welfare, where unemployment meant starvation, these guys had to work or lest they would starve, the action of the landowner in employing extra workers whom he did not need so late in the day was simply an act of generosity. He hired these men and he really didn't need to. But he did because he wanted to be generous. But even more unusual was the amount of pay. And this is where I had, I wrestled because I thought, yeah, it really didn't make any sense. You think about when you go into a a company, they usually start people off with the entry-level pay. And so anyone that's been there 10, 15, 20 years, or maybe close to facing retirement, if someone was hired making what you were making, on an entry level, how would that make you feel? That's sort of like what we're reading right here. These guys came in at the 11th hour. Here you are working in the Palestine heat all day in this vineyard. And so you see him hired and say, okay, all right, okay. Mm, then, you know. And then you see more guys, and then you're like, all right, it's about quitting time. You know, they looked at their watch, right? Like, and then it's time, so surely I'm going to get paid more than these guys. I've been here all day. Not only did they get paid the same, 
he made it a point to pay the last ones first. And that was deliberate. That was deliberate. You know, it was not unfair. But when you look at that passage, he says, Does I not, do I, don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? That can also be translated, my things. And it made me think oh, all the times I struggled watching God generously give to other Christians. And I'm like, whoa, 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 how in the world? And something in my heart got exposed. You know how when you feel something getting exposed and you want to just snatch it back? In my heart, it was coming. I'm like, no, 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 no. Get back in there. But it's like, like, no, let's deal with this, James. I think sometimes we as Christians can watch God be generous towards other Christians. And we get hot. We're like, wait a second. They don't deserve that. You're right. They don't. And neither do you. That's the point of God's grace. I've been here 20 years. I don't have nearly as much. And God, they've only been here for what? A year? And God is already doing this? They didn't go through this. They didn't go through that. They didn't suffer this. They didn't deal with this. Why do they get that? See, God's grace is not limited by our ideas of fairness. His gifts are far beyond what we deserve. See, it's when we don't have in mind the things of God that we see God's grace and generosity to those who in our mind don't deserve it or don't deserve as much that we complain of being treated unfairly by God. And that's when we stop denying ourselves. We start taking our lives back. We look at, well, hey, this one went to school on midweeks and I didn't, I I came to every service. They went to school and they graduated. How in the world? Well, this one left the church, got married and came back and and there, and God is blessing their life, and, and I stay faith. I did it the right way. I did the red light, the green light, the advice, and, and why are they? What? I sent my kids to all the camps. I even volunteered. They don't even want to study the Bible. And this one, how is their, their kids? St- what? You can't surrender once to Jesus. It's a daily thing. And if you don't have in mind the things of God, it will keep you from surrendering to God daily. Daily. I've been there. In the midst of helping people, I'm like, hold up. Really? Like, I'm expecting the advice to be something entirely different. It's like, no, we got to help them. We got to do this. We got to. I'm like, what? 
And in your hearts, God deals with us. And then you got to go back and you got to ask myself, man, am I the big brother in that prodigal son's story? He went and squandered his whole wealth. He squandered everything. I never left. I stayed faithful to God. There was no party for me. There ain't nobody announced me. But here's the thing. When you made Jesus Lord, you made Jesus Lord knowing that you may never get anything beyond forgiveness for your sin. That's surrender. I remember counting the cost. That was probably the most difficult thing for me. When the brothers sat down and they said, James, do you understand that becoming a disciple means that you may never get married? Now, for me, that was fine because I never wanted to get married. (laughs) I don't know what to think about that one, but... That, that's a, he was like, preach. I hope that's changed. But, you know, the possibility of having a girlfriend at some point, I'm like, all right, well. But I understood that there were things that God did not promise. Because I said Jesus is Lord. There were things that, you know, I, there were opportunities. In fact, I was faithful with a lot of the dreams that I had prior to becoming a disciple. They came my way. I always wanted to play college basketball. And when I was in the campus ministry, I was playing with some of the guys in the gym. The coach saw me play and told the guy, hey, tell him to come try out for the team. And I had the opportunity, but I was leading the campus ministry at the time. And I thought, how am I going to make this happen? Gave it up. Had a dream to be in, in the music industry. Interviewed for a big company. Didn't get the first position. They were impressed with the interview. Called me back for, another, for, for a different position. Dream job. But I was also offered to be an intern in the ministry. Gave it up. And you know, (laughs) hey man, sometimes, sometimes you have your moments, right? You're like, man, I wonder, I wonder, you know. But then you realize, even if things don't go as planned, you surrender to God. And that right there, is victory. That's victory, is that you surrender to God. Yeah, I love this quote, and we're bringing this to an end. It says, little seems more unequal than the unequal treatment of unequals. Let that sink in for a second. Little seems more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. You know, I really think 
we got to wrestle in our hearts with what we believe and who we believe are our equals. And who deserves what? You know, this parable is about salvation. About God being generous and offering salvation to whomever he pleases. We don't have copyrights to salvation. We don't have a trademark on salvation. That is God. And as long as we keep, as long as you do it according to the way the Bible and God tells you, it's God who determines who gets to share in his things. So if God decides to bless your non-Christian worker, you can't complain to God because he's being gracious to him because you don't know what God is doing in that person's life. God may be setting them up for salvation. So when you have in things the mind of God, you look at unequals differently. You realize that, man, I'm already blessed because at the end of the day, when I die, I'm going to be with the Father. So whether my checking account or my savings account looks one way, it doesn't matter because I'm already rich in Christ. So yeah, give them the mansion. Give them the Rolls Royce. Give them the fame. Give them the fortune. Give them the education. Give them the the debt-free living. But are they surrendered to Jesus? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. Is that we're totally surrendered to God. Like the older brother in the story, the prodigal son, we find it hard to accept the large-heartedness of God towards those sometimes we regard as undeserving, especially when we compare ourselves with others. You know, the workers grumbled, and we can identify. I mean, they have a strong point, and it's a commonplace principle. More work, more pay. Share your faith this, you do this, you read your Bible, you you become more spiritual. But that doesn't make you more deserving than an unspiritual person. Just as the workers agreed to the landowner's terms, we did the same thing when we said Jesus is Lord. We agreed to God's terms, which means that God is in control and that God can bless whoever he wants with how much ever he wants. Those are his things. We're just surrendered to following Christ. And you know what? Somebody's looking at you singing the same thing. How do they get to be so blessed? Think about that. When we have in mind the things of men, like Peter, we find it hard to surrender to God's way of things. But when we have in mind the things of God, then we trust in his grace and his ultimate will. And that's what we want. That's what we want. So how else do we develop this habit of submissiveness? First, we learn and we train ourselves to have in mind the things of God. We fight to keep a godly perspective, denying yourself, considering others better than yourself. That's having in mind the things of God. Spend some time in prayer this week. I plan to do this. Asking God to show you Which areas of your life are not surrendered to him? And then ask him to give you the strength and the humility to help you surrender those things. Because it really does take God's help for us to totally and completely surrender our lives to him. And then next week, we're going to look at part two of our lesson. 
in uh, growing in the discipline of submissiveness, which is ridding our hearts of rebellion. There's no place in our hearts for surrender if we're rebellious toward God. I love you guys. To God be the glory.